0: Alright, good morning to you again. I want to start this morning by asking you a question that I think is a very critical question. And the question is this. Do you know what worship is really about? You know, when we come together on Sundays, we sing songs together. But you, you know that it's more, it's, it's, it's more than just singing songs, right? Right? What is real worship? What does it mean? Real worship, true worship, is about us being in God's presence and simply enjoying Him. I think that's what it's truly about. Us enjoying the presence of God. Being in God's presence. Do you long for God's presence? Did you know that you were created to be in God's presence? That's what you and I were created for. To be in God's presence Happy, full, praising Him with our whole being, working in His strength, laughing and sharing in His joy, being overwhelmed with affection for Him. That's what worship is. We were made to be with God, in other words. We were made to be with Him. There's this great verse in the Psalms written by David. Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, One thing I ask of the Lord. One thing. This is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. That's the one thing David wanted more than anything else. I mean, if I were to ask you today, what, if you could ask God one, for one thing, just one thing, what would it be? Is that what you would ask for? Is that what I would ask for? You see, all of our problems and all of our sorrows and all of our confusion would completely melt away in the presence of God's glory. We would see clearly. We would know him as he truly is. But ever since sin entered our world, getting into God's presence has been a bit of a problem. In the beginning, God created the universe And everything was good. Nothing was wrong. God and people enjoyed a healthy, unbroken relationship. A kind of pure intimacy. In fact, the narrator of Genesis pictures this as Adam and Eve being in God's presence, completely naked and unashamed. Imagine that for a minute. What it would be like to live your life in the presence of God with no guilt, no shame, no fear of any kind. That is how we were made to live. That is what paradise is. But of course, Eve and all of us decided that they didn't need God to be happy. They believed a lie from the devil, and we've believed the same thing. And they rebelled against God, and God's response was to banish them from the Garden of Eden, to wander the land east of Eden. Which was a land of of hard ground, a land of thorns, a land of pain and difficulty and conflict, a land of disappointment. East of Eden is where we live now. (laughs) We live there. In this world, everyone loses everyone they love. You can't hang on to what is good, it all gets taken away from you. All of life ends in death. That's the real world. That's where we live. This world is cursed. And between God and people was placed a flaming sword so that if Adam and Eve ever decided to return to Eden, there would be no way for them to get back in. There's an artist's depiction of the sword guarding the way back to God's presence. And what we see here is east of Eden. If they wanted to try to get back into God's presence, they could, but they would have to face justice. The sword turned every direction at once. There was no way around it. Their sin created an impenetrable barrier between them and God. Even though there was a time where they could walk with God in the garden, enjoy his presence, speak with him freely, because of their sin, God became unviewable and unapproachable and untouchable. So the relationship was completely broken. But God, in his love and mercy and grace, created a way for him to be with us. So he chose a prophet, we talked about prophets last week, he chose a prophet, Moses, to construct a tent, which was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was where the presence of God would come down. And the presence of God would come down into the tabernacle, but not just anyone could approach the tabernacle. God chose and set apart a group of people who would be his priests. Okay? And uh, I wanted to point out a couple things. By the way, if, if you need a laser pointer at 9 a.m. in the morning, you can find one at Walmart. In the pet section, doubles as a cat toy. Sorry, this is all I could find. Or you can use it for your sermon on Christ our prophet. So... Here's the tabernacle, and there is a barrier all the way around the tabernacle. Let's see if I can make this work. There it is. Okay. This section here is thirty feet wide. The tabernacle itself is forty five feet long. Everything about this screams separation. Any common Israelite could enter the outer courts, but no common Israelite could get anywhere near the tabernacle. This was only reserved for the priests. And what was special about priests? There's a few things. Priests, a quali- few qualifications. They have to be human. Uh, let's go to the next slide. I think I have them up there. They have to. They had to offer sacrifices continually on behalf of the people, blood sacrifices mostly, They have to be gentle with the people, and they have to be appointed by God. Nobody could claim they were a priest or decide they wanted to be a priest and, you know, go to seminary or something like that. It had to be God's choice and God's appointment. The priests were a kind of mediator between God and his people. The the priest would bring, he, he brought the fears, the sins, and the guilt of the people into God's presence to intercede for God's people. What does it mean for a priest or for someone to intercede for God's people? Okay, here's, what's, here's what it means. People are in trouble because of their sin. We've offended God. We've broken God's law. God is holy. And we have crossed the line. We have violated his holiness. Every one of us. We've all missed the mark. We've all trespassed. We've all fallen short of his glory. We've sinned against God and broken his law. And because of our sin, we stand condemned and guilty and hopeless before God. There's that barrier. We can't get into God's presence. So we need someone to go to God and plead for us, or at least try to reconcile the differences that exist between us and God. We need someone to go to God and to ask for mercy on our behalf because we can't get anywhere near God. We need someone to represent us because we can't represent ourselves. That's the role of the priest. He would hear confessions and pray for the people. He would offer sacrifices to show us and remind us that our sin deserves death. Bulls, goats, lambs, doves, even flour and wine and oil were sacrificed depending on the nature of your sin. And the point of all the sacrifices was this, was this. God was showing the people what Jesus was going to do later. All the sacrifices were put in place to point us ahead to Jesus, which we'll talk about in a minute. God's God's word says at one point in the New Testament that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of innocent blood. In other words, our sin has created a debt between us and God. We owe God something, and the only way to pay that debt is through the shedding of innocent blood. I I sometimes wonder, maybe some of you have wondered this, if it would be helpful at, at times, you know, every once in a while to offer a blood sacrifice after we sin. <laughs> just to remind us how serious our sin is. And here's why. Because I think sometimes we think that because we're living after the time of Jesus and Jesus has come and done away with the sacrificial system, we can just sin and then go to God and say, Oops, God, I'm sorry I did that again. Please forgive me. Okay, good. Now I can go on my merry way. And we sometimes act as though our sin doesn't cost anything. But believe me, believe me, the priests were constantly reminded of the cost of sin, especially on the Day of Atonement. You see, there was only one priest who could actually go into the presence of God, and that was the high priest. And the high priest could not go into God's presence whenever he wanted God could only be accessed one day a year by one person in one room, the most holy place, and all of this is spelled out for us in the book of Leviticus. How many of you are reading through Leviticus right now? That's what I thought. Oh, one person. Okay. How many of you have tried to read the Bible in one year, or how many of you? Okay, how many of you got got stuck in the book of Leviticus and gave up? I have, if I'm being honest, I have. Leviticus is tough. I mean, it's about the tabernacle and temple worship. So many physical laws. I mean, you can't eat this. You can't touch this. You can't touch that. You can't worship if you break this law or that law. You can't worship God if you have unclean bodily discharges. You can't worship if you have a skin problem. You can't worship if you have an infection. You can't worship if you have diarrhea. I'm sorry to bring that up. It's in there. Okay? So don't go to Taco Bell on your way to the tabernacle. You can't have any physical ailments, basically. You can't even have dirt on your clothes and worship in the presence of God. You would be denied access, even to the outer courts of the tabernacle. So imagine being chosen as the one person out of a million Jews who gets to enter the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. One week prior to the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into seclusion, fasting and praying, staying up all night the night before. Imagine the stress and anxiety he was under, knowing that the next day he would be entering the most holy place where the presence of God was. Might be the only time in his entire life he would do this. What if he was unclean? What if he was deceived? What if there was some sin in his heart he didn't know about? He washed his body vigorously. He was dressed with perfectly clean white garments in the, in the holy place. That's the room outside the most holy place by the other priests. They would dress him. His clothes were sacred, even though great care was taken to ensure that the high priest was clean and ready to enter God's presence. A rope was usually tied around his ankle before he entered, just in case he was struck down dead in the presence of God. Do we have a, can we go to the next slide? One more. Okay, there's a picture, an actual photograph that I found. Okay, it's not a real photograph. It's just an illustration of a high priest and something. I mean, his body was just covered with jewels, gold, silver. And everything had to be perfect. And the, the, uh, the priest would take certain animals with him, and they all had to be perfect without spot or blemish. Of any kind. And one by one the priest would slaughter the animals except for the scapegoat. Which would be sent away into the wilderness. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so what the priest would do is he would. Let's go back to the picture of the tabernacle. Here's the high priest. Where's my. Right there. There's a curtain separating him from the holy place. There's the uh, the table of bread and the, and the candles and the altar of incense and there's this giant curtain here 15 feet high separating the most holy place and in the most holy place there's one object the the ark of the covenant was ba- which was basically just a box just covered with gold and on the base here is called the mercy seat and the high priest would go into the most holy place and he would with blood with the blood of the of the uh bull and sprinkle it all over. And this is after he'd already sprinkled blood in all kinds of other places. His hands were all full of blood, and he would sprinkle blood on the on the um, the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, to atone for the sins of himself and the people. And then he would have to take his clothes off, his his outer garments. All the priestly garments would have to come off, including the the the, top, the, the, the turban. It would all come off, and he would then come out, he would have to leave those in the most holy place, he'd have to come back out, offer more sacrifices, come back out into the outer court, offer more, burn more animals on the altar, and then he would literally place his hands on a live goat, on the head of a live goat, and for a very long time, confess all of the sins of the people, all of their rebellion. And he would He's transferring, what's going on there is he's transferring the sins of the people, including his own sin, onto this goat, which was the scapegoat. And while all the other other animals were slaughtered and burned, and their blood was sprinkled inside the the tabernacle and on the altar, this one goat, the scapegoat, would be sent outside the gate, and someone would lead it outside the city into the desert to a desolate place, never to return. Never to return. And the point of all that is to remind the people year after year that every single sin is an offense to God. Every single sin, no matter how small, carries with it a price. Every sin is costly. And the biggest cost is this, banishment from the presence of God. Banishment. From God's presence forever. And this practice went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then in about 520 BC, the prophet Zechariah had a vision. He has a vision about a priest, a high priest, and it's very disturbing. And I want to describe it for you. In Zechariah chapter 3, he has this vision of Joshua the high priest Standing before the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, really. He's standing in the presence of God. And Satan is standing next to him, accusing him. And Joshua has a problem. And his problem isn't that Satan's accusing him, he's standing in the presence of God with filthy garments. He's in the most holy place, and his garments are filthy, full of excrement. He's covered in it, he's, he smells repulsive. Zechariah is shocked. How could this happen? How could the high priest even get into the presence of God looking like this? What does this vision mean? And here's what it means. The high priest chosen by God, who, who's the most, he's supposed to, this, this is supposed to be the most serious and careful person in the assembly, and the whole nation of Israel. He's utterly filthy in God's eyes. He's chosen by God to represent the people. And he's filthy. No matter how many times he washes and bathes, no matter how hard he scrubs, no matter how many jewels adorn his sacred garments, his guilty stain is never coming off. God sees it all. He sees through it all. He sees through our rituals. He sees through our performance. He sees through our mask. He sees through our facade. And we are covered, all of us, in filth guilt and shame think about this there there's some sins that leave us exposed you think about i think about someone who's totally drunk someone who you, i mean if someone's just drunk off their rocker it's pretty hard to hide that you're going to see it aren't you you're going to see it or hear it in the way they talk see it in the way they walk you're going to smell the liquor on them it's difficult to hide drunkenness from others But someone who's committing adultery, whether it's online or with an actual person, they don't look or smell any different, do they? They can do things to hide that and cover that up, but not in God's presence. And God is showing Zechariah and he's showing us that no matter how hard we try to cover our sin up and cover our guilt, we all look like Joshua did in the presence of God filthy the prophet isaiah in isaiah 64 6 says this all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts like filthy rags we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away away from what away from god's presence And so what happened next in the vision? What happened? Did God destroy Joshua? He's filthy. He broke the law. But listen to what God said. In verse 4 of Zechariah chapter 3. Take off his filthy clothes. See, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. See, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. When did that happen? What day is God talking about? When did, I mean, what an amazing promise. Listen, centuries later, centuries later, about 500 years later, actually, there was another Joshua. His name was Yeshua in Hebrew. We call him Jesus. Standing before the high priest the night before he died. And Jesus prayed to God the night he was betrayed. I mean, we, we talked about the anxiety the high priest would feel the night before the Day of Atonement. But think about Jesus Jesus was under so much stress and agony in his spirit the night before his service as our high priest, not because he was going to go into God's presence, but because he knew the next day he would be banished from God's presence. Nobody cleaned him. Nobody washed him. Nobody stood up for him or advocated for him. Nobody gave him royal or, or priestly garments or clothes to wear. Instead, they mocked him. They stripped out. They stripped his clothing. They beat him. They scourged him until his flesh was torn to shreds. He was full of spit and blood. Jesus was. Here was An innocent man, spotless and blameless, the most beautiful and radiant human being to ever grace the earth. He was treated like an animal. He was led up to a hill to die on a cross. Jesus, our high priest. And what was Jesus doing on the cross? Why why did he have to die? The writer of Hebrews tells us a lot about this. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we read in verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, right? Not the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, his payment is not annual. It's once for all. Four, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, a defiled, of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What an amazing passage. I mean, we have, you and I, this is so practical, my friends. You and I have a defiled conscience. We have an evil conscience. Okay, we have, we have all turned away from God. And decided that what I want is more important than what God wants in this moment. We've done that, all of us. We do it probably every day. And because of that, a kind of uneasiness begins to sink in. And we don't always identify it as guilt, but that's pretty much what it is. It weighs us down. It creates a sense of being unsettled. It eats away at our confidence and our rest and our peace. It disturbs our sleep. And we know something isn't right with us, but we don't always know why. Now maybe some, of us, maybe some of us know why. Maybe some of you or some of us are living with brazen, unrepentant sin. But many others have resigned to a life of just uneasiness. And guilt has settled into their heart and we've learned to live with it. Some people don't have overflowing joy in Christ. They don't have unwavering confidence. They don't have deep-rooted peace. I mean, why do some people worry so much? Why do they obsess over what their kids see and hear? Or their kids having a bad experience? Why do, where does that anxiety come from? Why do some people work and work and work and climb and climb, never satisfied? They reach one career milestone and feel good for a few mi- months or, or years. And then the itch comes again. They can't be still. They can't rest. They got to keep working, keep achieving. Or they feel like their life lacks meaning. Where does that come from? Why are some people exhausted from helping others? They can't say no. They can't bear to let someone's need go unmet. Why do some people why are some people unable to confront others directly when they see a problem? Where does that fear come from? Or why are some people always confronting others even when, whenever they see a problem, even when they shouldn't? Why do some people hide themselves from others? Why are they so guarded? Why do they wear a mask wherever they go? Why are they afraid to admit who they really are? Why do some people seem to be always on edge and just angry all the time? Where does that come from? Why are some people obsessed with their appearance, afraid of putting on any weight or afraid of aging? You know what the answer is to all those questions? A dirty conscience. It all comes from that. It all comes from a lack of rest in God's presence. Guilt loves the darkness. It loves to stay hidden. It loves to go unchecked and unnoticed. It thrives in the deep, dark recesses of our being. And every one of us needs to be cleansed. We need our consciences to be purified. We need to know that we have an advocate And so in Hebrews chapter 9, again down in verse 24 through 26, the writer kind of finishes his point. He goes on to say, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Right now. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Brothers and sisters, some of you are striving to enter God's presence. You're trying to get back on track. You want so badly to prove yourself in God's presence. You're trying to prove yourself to God. You're trying to prove yourself to others. You want people to know that I'm okay. But there is nothing you could ever do to remove your guilty stain. Jesus and only Jesus Christ can remove our guilt. And when Jesus removes your guilt, he does it once for all. When he died on the cross, he died there in your place. Your sin was put on him. I mean, When the priest would sacrifice an animal, that's what they were hoping was happening, was that the animal was taking God's punishment. The animal was being punished instead of you. The problem with that is we have to keep doing it year after year. We have to keep doing it every time we sin. We have to come with more and more sacrifices, more and more animals. But with Jesus, it's once for all. It's once for all. He took our sin in his own body. And the gospel tells us that if you believe in Jesus Christ, your sin was already punished on the cross. You were already judged on the cross. Your debt has already been paid once for all. And that's a promise from our faithful God and our faithful high priest, Jesus. Do you know what God has promised us? There's a lot of things that God has promised in the Bible. Let me tell you what God has never promised us in the Bible. God has never promised to protect us from bad things and bad people. Did you know that? He's never promised that if we're faithful to him, we'll be wealthy or even well off. He never promised that. He's never promised that if we pray for healing, he will heal us. He didn't promise that. He might heal you, but he never promised he would. God has never promised that you will have a great marriage. He's never promised that you that if you do things a certain way, you will have well-behaved successful children. He's never promised that you that, that he's never even promised that harm will not come to your children. He's never promised that. He's never promised that you will live a long life on this earth. God has never promised to reverse the consequences of our bad decisions. God has never promised to answer yes to our prayers. Those are things that God has not promised us, that sometimes we think he has. So what has God promised us? I have an encouraging word for you this morning. He's promised us that in this world you will have trouble. He's also promised that if Jesus said, if you follow me, you will face opposition and tribulation. But here's the greatest promise of all. God has promised us Jesus. He's promised us Jesus. And that means that even if. You're not. You don't have a lot of money. And even if you get sick. And even if harm comes to you or your children. And even if. You face a crisis in your marriage. Or you lose your marriage. Or even if. You suffer tremendous pain or tribulation. You have the best thing you could ever want, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Why is that the best? Well, let's summarize what we learned this morning. What does Jesus accomplish for us as our our as our high priest? Three things. Three things we have because Jesus is our high priest. Number one, Jesus offered. A, Jesus offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And that means we do not need to plead with God to let us back into his presence day after day after day after day after day. In other words, once, G, once you put your faith in Jesus, your sin is judged on the cross. His righteousness, you're covered in it. You're clothed in his righteousness. God sees you and treats you as his beloved child. He's not going to disown you because you have a bad day. He's not going to banish you from his presence ever. He will never leave us or forsake us. He's promised that. On your worst day, you have access to your heavenly father. On your worst day, he will not hide himself from you ever again. That's number one. Number two, Jesus continually brings us into God's presence. Continually, over and over and over again. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us now draw near to God. Let us go into his presence with confidence, with a clear conscience, knowing that the blood of Jesus has taken care of all of our debt and all of our sin. And lastly, we're told that Jesus continually intercedes for us in God's presence. Jesus is our great advocate. He's our great advocate. He is at the Father's right hand, continually interceding for us, continually praying for us. There's nothing more practical to help you handle the difficulties of life than understanding the work of Christ, and specifically, that Jesus is our great advocate. He's our high priest. He's brought us back into the presence of God. Let me put it to you this way. We don't have functioning priests anymore like ancient Israel did. We don't. We don't do that. Do you know why? Because according to the Apostle Peter, we're all priests. We're a royal priesthood. And do you know what that means? The high priest, he was covered in jewels. I mean, if you would hold a candle up to the high priest in a dark room, it would just just sparkle. There were jewels everywhere, gold and silver and all of that. It was a beautiful sight. It was all very elaborate. It all had significance and meaning. But the point is that when God looks at us, he sees radiance. He sees beauty. Through faith in Jesus, he looks at you, and you might feel filthy one day. But when God sees you, he sees absolute beauty. Doesn't that just blow your mind? It just blows my mind. That even though I am, sometimes I feel covered in, in filth. Because of the blood of Jesus, he sees me as his beautiful child. We are precious to him. We are stunning to him. But we've been clothed in the righteousness and radiance of Christ. And so we have con- confidence to draw near to God today. And you and I as brothers and sisters in God's family, you know what we're supposed to do because of all this? We're supposed to encourage each other. When you see me sinning, when I see you sinning, if you see me throwing a temper tantrum or lashing out in anger, or if I see you hiding something or, or, you know, being two-faced or talking about someone behind their back, whenever we see each other, you know, falling short or missing the mark, we're not even supposed to hide from each other to begin with. But when we see it, we're supposed to encourage each other. I say, hey, what's going on? We're brothers. We don't have to do this. We're forgiven. We're covered in the righteousness of Jesus. If you're discouraged and you feel like, Does God could God even love me anymore? I've sinned so many times. I've failed so many times. I keep going to God with the same prayer over and over. How could God keep taking me back? We're supposed to encourage each other. Listen, God loves you. You are my brother. He will never disown you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's faithful to his promises. We're supposed to encourage each other. You know why? Because Jesus, our high priest, is going to return And when he does, we'll be changed. We'll be changed forever. And that's our hope today. That's our hope every day. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. We thank you, God, for your many and great promises that we stand on. And we thank you especially for Jesus Christ, who you sent to be our faithful high priest and our substitute. That because of his death on the cross, God, we can draw near to you We are no longer alienated from you. We no longer have to go through these rituals. Jesus said at one point, "You know, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. I have come to do your will, O God." And we are thankful today, Jesus, that you set aside your anxieties and your and your stress and your worries about. Tomorrow, and you submitted yourself wholly to the will of the Father, to serve as our faithful High Priest. That you gave yourself over to be crucified, so that we could have life in the presence of the Father, joy in the presence of the Father. I pray today, God, for anyone who who lacks faith, who lacks confidence. God, that you would remind us today of your goodness, of your faithfulness. That Jesus is our great advocate always interceding for us and bringing us into your presence, Father, that we would learn to long for your presence and enjoy your presence today, God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.